The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Amen, church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you, because of what your son has done, clothe us in your righteousness. That's important, God, because we have no righteousness. We have nothing of our own that we can present to you that would make us acceptable before you. But because of your great love for us, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We are those ungodly. And Lord, for everyone who places their faith in you, they can be clothed in your righteousness, have new life, purpose, freedom from shame and guilt, and an eternal destiny with you. We thank you for these realities. Lord, we pray that they, along with the reading of your word, would draw us even more deeper into worship this morning. Thank you that that has already begun in our hearts because we've, we've sung the gospel, we've studied the gospel in our Sunday school time, and now we get to read and hear the gospel message from your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Children ages four and five can be dismissed over to that side of the worship center, and everyone else can be seated. It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Greg Mathis. Uh, for those of you who might be new to Abner Creek or perhaps we just may not have met, um, I, I so appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning and to fill in. Um, those of you who know Whitney and my son Coram, they're not here this morning. They send their best. Coram has been a little under the weather. Uh, so we, we wanted to share this time with you, but we did not want to share our germs with you. So um, he's at home, hopefully napping, and um, we appreciate uh, your prayers for him just so that he'll recover quickly. Um, if you would, turn to, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Um, of course, the, the sermon series on, on the seven churches of Revelation has concluded, and Matt uh, told me that I could preach on whatever I wanted to. And uh, sometimes that's the most... Uh, that's the most time-consuming part of, of preparing a sermon is determining exactly where in a, in a book so vast as the Scriptures, where, where to begin. But I thought it would be appropriate to, to ask this question, what in the New Testament is the most important thing? What indeed in the, in the entire Bible, what, what topic, what, what central point are the entire scriptures focused around? And I think that we would do well to let the scriptures themselves answer that question as we look to John chapter 1. It's an important question. What is the most important thing? Because if we expect that the answer to that question is something other than what the scriptures present, then we will be coming to the Bible asking the wrong questions and looking for the wrong answers. So we need to allow the scriptures themselves to set the stage for us. This question, what is most important, is just as, is just as important for a stay-at-home mom as it is to the man every day plodding away on the spreadsheet. The reason for that is because the central point of the New Testament, the central point of the entire Bible, is the central point around which we must build our lives. And that give all of our lives, all of our work, all of our families, all of our labors meaning. It's just as important for those people as it is for, 
the freshman in college who's perhaps taking a New, a new Testament class. And in that New Testament class, every day they come into class and they hear this message that I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not what the Bible means. This question is just as important for us today. Perhaps you're a believer. Perhaps you've walked in these doors and you're just very honestly saying, no, I'm, I'm not trusting Christ. I, this, this Christianity thing is not something I've bought into. What is it that the New Testament presents as the most important thing? I want to ask you to, to imagine with me Imagine with me putting yourself in the situation of the people of God in between the Testaments, 400 years of silence. There have been no prophets. There have been no new words from God since if you, if you, in your Bible reading plan if you left off at Malachi. And then imagine 400 years. Imagine how many generations that is. You begin to wonder, have we really done it this time? Have we really messed up so bad that we're beyond the reach of God? Is the Lord going to come true on His promises because it's been 400 years, six or eight or ten or generations, and no word from God? And then imagine, then imagine opening to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, and reading these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. This is a great mystery, how it could be that a God who has said of himself that he dwells in unapproachable light, that he dwells in such stark holiness that he cannot be approached. And this very God has made himself accessible to man. He's taken on flesh and walked among us paid the price that we owed to God so that we might be made acceptable to Him. The answer to the question, of course, what does the New Testament, what does the entire Bible, indeed, how, do, how does our, our measurement of time, time itself was split by the coming of this Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
He's highlighted here in such an unmistakable way. God is redeeming his people. He's moving. He's acting. And he's doing it all through the person and work of his son. I remember someone asking one time, honestly, this is a true story. Why is it that you Christians sing so much about Jesus? And the reason is because the Bible itself places its focus on the redeeming work of Jesus. He is the one who accomplished that which we could not accomplish. He is the one who fulfilled the purpose of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity working together to accomplish for us what the world needs. Namely, the redemption of the souls of sinners. This is why all of our worship revolves around Christ. We, we like to call ourselves Christ-centered churches. The Son is at the center not only of this passage, but at the center of all of God's redeeming purposes. And this means, this means that the person and work of the Son, of the Word of Jesus, must be at the center of how we orient our lives, our churches, our budgets, our desires, or the questions that we ask of the Bible. And I have, a, I mean, I, I confess to you that many times when I have attempted to, to preach the gospel, I think I've looked back on those times and I've thought to myself, you know, I probably just tried to present the gospel as reasonable. Or I've probably tried to present the gospel as understandable or persuasive or maybe even worse, just helpful, 10 steps to a happy life. But the reality is, is that the gospel itself, the gospel preaches itself in the person and work of Jesus. So what we must do, whether we're having a gospel conversation with a co-worker or whether you're doing what I'm doing right now and, and trying to, to teach what the Bible says, what we must do is just simply put the Son on display and He will do His work. He will do the work that he must do in the hearts of sinners because only he can. So our job is, is much like a zookeeper. Just open the door to this thing and let it run. And that's what I hope to do this morning as we read about the Son, the Word. First point is this, verses 1 and 2. The Son exists eternally. The Son exists eternally. Eternally. When we think of eternal life, we often think, if you remember from geometry, what a ray is. Okay, a ray is a line, but it has a point that begins and then it goes forward. Okay, we think of our lives as being like eternal life. Okay, we, we, we're born one day, you know, a few years later we come to, to faith in Christ and then we say we have eternal life from here on. But the Son has existed eternally both ways. He has existed eternally that way into the past, if we can speak this way, and he will exist eternally that way into the future as he does right now as, as the risen Lord at the right hand of the Father. In the beginning was the word, the, the logos. That's, that's what the, the Greeks understood this word, logos, to mean the rationale behind which all of humanity, all of the world is, is explained. It was this word that, that encompassed so many things. The word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, but something even more scandalous. The word was God. How can we understand this? We understand it this way. Jesus here, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, 
is so identified with God that we must understand that he is God. He is not like the New World Translation of the Bible, which is no translation at all that that Jehovah's Witnesses use. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. It's a brutal butchering of the Greek text, but... Uh, they, they, of course, don't believe that Jesus is God, that he's a person of the Trinity. But here we know that the, the word was God. If the Son has a purpose, and he has come for a purpose, and the Son has existed eternally with God, and if the Son is God, this means that God's purpose to save humanity pre-existing our, pre-existed our being here on earth. Do you understand what that means? In other words, the Son has a purpose in the Trinity. The Father has a purpose, the Holy Spirit has a purpose, and the Son has a purpose. And the Son has existed eternally both ways. That means that His purpose has existed eternally. That means that even before you sinned, even before I sinned, even before Adam sinned, God had made preparation for the salvation of those who would need it. Because the Son and His work and His purpose have existed forever. Now we can get bogged down in all the minutiae and all the complicated, controversial things that that seems to, to imply. But here's what we need to do instead. Let's just meditate on the reality and let it draw us to worship. That before we even sinned, before the fall even occurred, God had made provision. So how secure is the salvation of those who trust in Jesus? How secure and how sure is your salvation if you are trusting in him? Eternally secure. Eternally sure. Because God was not caught off guard by your sin or by the sin of Adam and Eve. The son existed with God as God eternally. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have to understand also what John is doing here. He's using, as I said, this Greek word logos to reel in his, his readers, okay? People who would be reading this and would hear the word logos, and, and automatically there would be ideas in their minds. So John is using this word out in, his Greek, in the Greek context, and he's using it almost like a little bit of bait to reel people in and to say, I know that you think you know what the ultimate purpose of the world is, but I'm here to tell you what it really is. And it's the God himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. It had connections to the, the idea, this word logos, the idea of the ideal or the perfect man or the perfect world. John leverages this word to say, I'm here to tell you about the real logos. We must understand what is, what is meant by, by the Word. Of course, in the Old Testament, the Word of God highlights His activity in creation, revelation, and redemption. You think about this. Every time that something creative happens, God spoke it into existence. The, the Word has creative power. The Word also has revelatory power. In other words, when God speaks through the prophet, it comes through a Word. And today, when we share the gospel, faith comes by what? By hearing there's this connection between the word and the revelation of god and now we see that the word is associated with jesus himself and his work to redeem sinners it has creative revelatory and redemptive power the application for us is to understand 
is to understand that our salvation is secure, eternally secure, because the Son has existed eternally. And I, I would just say as an aside, um, in, in some of the... Um, I, I provide some, some biblical counseling. I have a, just recently got a certification to do some biblical counseling. And one of the things that I've often recognized is that those who doubt their salvation, honest, genuine people who are seeking to, to, to know the Lord and to trust the Lord, those who doubt whether they are saved or not, sometimes this arises from believing that their salvation somehow depends on something they can do. And it totally makes sense, doesn't it? Because if salvation depends on something that you can do, then you have reason to doubt. But if your salvation depends on the, etern- the eternality of the Son and His work and what He has done on the cross for you and that you have placed your faith in that, then there is no need for doubt. Let that encourage you. The Logos, of course, is God Himself. God has taken on flesh to demonstrate His love for His people and His desire to redeem them. The Word was not only with God, but it, it was God. This means at least this. It means that we must understand the words and the works of Jesus. When we read all these words in red, if your Bible's a red-letter edition, those are the very words of God Himself, and the actions that Jesus does in the Gospels are meant to show us the character of God. Secondly, second point is that the Son creates. Look at verse 3. The Son creates. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John is highlighting, God is highlighting the Son's role as a creator. This further enforces, reinforces the idea that He existed eternally, because how could the Son create if He was created? He's not a created being. He has existed forever with the Father. We understand this. Jesus himself, the Son, is God. He's, he's proven to be this because he, he creates. But how could we mistake the, the, the connection that's being made here? When you read the words of John 1.1 and it says, In the beginning. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the other time in the Bible where it said, In the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1. When God created. This is what's happening here. The grand point, don't don't let this slide by you. God is saying something like this. In Genesis, I created. But in sending my son, I began my work of recreating. Of redeeming. Of salvaging that which was broken. And lost. And it's the same God who created that will recreate. Look at Colossians chapter 1, if you would, um, quickly. Colossians chapter 1 reinforces these things about the Son, and it, and it puts it on, on grand display. Verses 15 through 17. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 say, say this about the Son. He is the image of the invisible God. That's the, the exact imprint, right? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him 
all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only does, does the Son create, but he sustains. Not only did he give you life, but he even now controls the involuntary beating of your heart that allows you to listen to the words that I'm saying right now. He creates and he sustains. And of course, not to dwell too long on this, but how can you say that the Son has existed eternally when the Bible says that, that uh, he was the firstborn of all creation? Well, the word, you have to understand the word firstborn there means most important. Okay, David was called the firstborn of the kings of Israel. He, clearly, he was not the first king of Israel or the firstborn king, but he was the most important. So just to, to put that to rest. Um, Let's not miss this point that the very same God who created is the same God who has the power to redeem and he is doing that work now through his son. The third point is this. The son is sent. Listen to the progression. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were, re- were made through him. So the son, cre- the son um, has existed eternally. The son creates And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the sun is sent. He's sent, as it were, as a light into a dark place. This speaks to the purpose of the sun and his work. The sun had a purpose and a mission to fulfill. And if the Trinity is always working together in a unified manner, the mission of the sun will accomplish the purpose of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so what's happening here is he's saying the way that I chose to do this was by sending my son. The father, the father is suggesting that the way that I've chosen to do this is to send my son in flesh. John 1.14, go down in our same passage, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the, uh, the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And there's something I didn't put in my notes here, but I just wanted to um, draw attention to it. In 1 John chapter 1, it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. So he says this thing that, w- that existed from the beginning, we heard it, we saw it with our eyes, we looked upon it, we've even touched it with our hands talks about this, this, this grand mystery of how it could be that the son who has existed from eternity past could be something that we could see, that we could hear, that we could touch, and perhaps for some, even place their fingers into his wounds. This is the great mystery. It's even hard to speak about it in a theologically correct way without making a mistake because it's so difficult to wrap our minds around, but the point this morning is just that we might hear it and believe it. That this God, for his love, because of his great love for us, did not simply wave a wand from heaven to make all of our ills right. Instead, he was a God who desired to dwell among his people 
Just like he did in the garden when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Just like he made a way to dwell among his people with the tabernacle system carrying these tents and these poles through the wilderness forever. And just like he did in the temple where you had this temple and you could actually go into the the presence of God. And and the first thing you saw when you came into the temple was the laver. It was this bowl of water that you ceremonially washed in to symbolize that you needed to be clean to go any further. And just like he did when he sent his son. The reason that all those other ways, the tabernacle and the temple and the the pillar of fire and all these other ways, the burning bush. The reason that those are unsatisfying is because they were intended to be unsatisfying. They were intended to whet our appetite For a more true reality. The coming one. They were types. They were shadows of the presence of God that was to come in Jesus Christ. And he did. And he walked among us and people heard him. And people saw him and people put their hands inside of his wounds. And bore witness to what he did. Dorothy Sayers has said this about Jesus. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is limited in suffering and subject to the sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can take nothing from man that he has not taken from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trials and irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors and pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, God played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it all worthwhile. Whatever trials and troubles have accompanied you as you have walked through this pilgrim life of living as a human on earth, whatever troubles have attended your way, Jesus knows them because Jesus experienced them. And he sympathizes with you. Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. but We have one who took on flesh who experienced the things that we experienced, but yet was sinless. It's me paraphrasing. Next point is this. The son is foretold. Verses 6 through 8. Some very, very worship-driving things are happening here in verses 6 through 8. It says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. If we're not careful, we'll think, this seems kind of disjointed. Why would John just throw this in there while he's, he's proclaiming the excellencies of the Son, and then he throws this little thing in there about John? He's doing it for a very specific reason. One of those reasons is to do this, is to, is to signal that a shift is happening in God's salvation history. He's he's saying, I put this man in here, this John, this John the Baptist, not John who wrote this, but John the Baptist, who stands astride the two testaments as if to say one chapter is closing and another grand and glorious chapter is opening. It's as if John is here to say, you guys don't need anybody else like me again. I am the last of the prophets. 
Because we don't have to foretell anything else anymore. Because the thing that we've been telling you about is now here. That's one thing that John is doing. The second is to highlight the reality that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. This guy did not just come out of nowhere. He did not you know, come, come exist in some kind of vacuum or whatever. But it says this, the Savior was foretold. Listen to this, and this is, just, this is just, just the ones that I could jot down quickly. The Savior was foretold to be born in Bethlehem. He was foretold to be born in the line of David. He was foretold to be born of a virgin that he would be called out of Egypt. And his parents had to take him to Egypt to flee from here and then come back. He, he was foretold that he would be preceded by a messenger like John the Baptist. He was foretold that he would perform healing miracles. It was foretold of him that he would ride on a donkey. Very specific thing. It was foretold of him that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's awfully specific. And it was foretold of him that he would be pierced and that he would rise from the dead. John is here to remind us that this guy is not just another good teacher. This guy is the one who has come from a long line of prophecies, of look for this kind of statements in the history of the Old Testament. Mark chapter 1, and of course, you know, Mark is only 16 chapters long, and it's noted for how brief it is and how action-packed it is. All it seems to do is talk about the ministry of Jesus, but it's interesting. It's interesting that before it even talks about the ministry of Jesus, it talks about the ministry of John the Baptist. As if to highlight this point, in the, begin, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and it goes straight into the ministry, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's very clear a baton is being passed here. No longer do we need the prophets of the Old Testament, but now the reality has come. All we've had before now is the shadow and the anticipation and the waiting and the doubting, but now the thing is here. The man is here. The next point, verses 9 through 11, the son was rejected. Even though all of these things that I've said previously are true, the son was still rejected. And listen, if you don't listen to anything else I say this morning, if you've just been looking down all morning and you just want to tune in for five minutes, I'll go ahead and let you in on what the most important five minutes is. It's right here. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. The son was rejected. It's the greatest and saddest irony of all of human history that the one who created people and who sustained the lives of people was rejected by those very same people. 
He sustains their breathing. He sustains their lives. He sustains the very world that they live in that provides oxygen, and yet they looked at him and determined that the cost of worshiping him interferes a little too much with their own sense of independence, with their own pursuits. The theme of light and darkness is on full display here, and this is, this is huge in everything that John wrote. The theme of light and darkness signals to us this, that, that Jesus was a, an illuminating force in history, in darkness. Who is the darkness? The darkness is us. We need the light that Jesus provided. It's very interesting if you read in John chapter 3, if you just want to turn maybe not even one page over in your Bible, it's very interesting when you, just before John 3.16, there's a story, okay? And that story just before John 3.16 is very important to what John 3.16 means. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, okay? He's, he's, a, he's a doctrinally astute man, okay? He knows all of the, the doctrine. This man came to Jesus when? By night, during a period of darkness. This is a theme that is repeated throughout John's gospel. Certain things happen in the dark that are spiritually dark, and certain things happen in the light that are spiritually light. Think about what happens when Jesus is crucified. The sky turns black and the, and the veil is rent in the temple. And the man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom? No. He cannot see the kingdom. It's talking about blindness, spiritual blindness and spiritual darkness. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? This great teacher doesn't understand the words that Jesus is saying. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have told you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The dark part of this story is that the story ends, and we don't have any confidence that Nicodemus came to believe in Jesus. And if that doesn't highlight the darkness that exists in the human heart, then I don't know what does. That a man could meet Jesus. That a man could be told the gospel by the gospel and still reject it. So don't be discouraged if you share the gospel with your coworker and they don't respond. And this morning, I won't be discouraged if I share the gospel and no one responds because Nicodemus, it seems, even rejected Jesus himself. But take care lest that darkness still exist in your own heart. Where is your heart this morning? Is your heart still shrouded by darkness? Is your heart still led away by desires of the world, by just wanting to do your own thing and... The only reason you're here is because of tradition or your parents or whatever. Or has your heart been enlightened by the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel? What I'm telling you is that you will give your life to something. You will worship something. 
I'm just trying to, to make sure that you worship something worth worshiping. The only one worth worshiping. The Son is worthy of your life. He has existed eternally. He created. He was sent. He was foretold. He came. He was rejected. And the last point is the Son redeems. The Son redeems. This is good news for us because we are the kind of people who reject Him. Let us not think no matter if you were saved at age four, which I believe the Lord can do, if you were saved at age four or six or seven like me or whatever, don't fool yourself into thinking that you were not born a rejecter of God. You were born a rejecter, a rebel rebel in rebellion, an enemy of God. And, And you are only here this morning believing in him because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the only reason. But listen to these words. Few sweeter words has, have ever been uttered. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now the world uses this phrase, children of God, in a way that the Bible does not. The culture says, hey, everyone's a child of God. But the scriptures here suggest that entrance into God's family was purchased at the cross and can only be secured by faith in Jesus Christ. God desires that you be in his family. And guess what? When you're in his family, you get to have the inheritance that comes with being in his family. And that inheritance includes peace, freedom from guilt, and eternal life with him forever. So very very neat. It kind of works like this. I'll tell you a story. One time, and I'm, I'm a golfer. I'm not a very good golfer. I was just talking with Jason about how bad of a golfer I've been the last year because I haven't hit any golf balls. But one time I got invited to play at a very, very nice golf course by someone who worked at the golf course. And um, this golf course was so nice that, you, you, you know, you, of course you just can't, not anybody can go. It wasn't Augusta National, but it was in the little tier just below that. Really nice golf course. And I get there, and, man, you pull up in the car, and when you open up the car, man, these guys are there to grab the door handle, and, you know, uh, you go to the bathroom, and they're there to hand you a towel after you wash your hands on your way out and all kinds of stuff, you know. You drop your bag off, and they're, they're calling you by your last name. And how do these guys even know my last name? I've never been here before, but I kind of like it. You guys can keep doing that if you want to, you know. And you're walking around and all kinds of stuff. You go into the clubhouse, and my friend, who, who is the only reason that I'm there, my friend says, uh, hey, you know, Greg and the other guys that were with us, you know, just grab a, grab a shirt, whatever you want, uh, grab a pullover, you know, a, a long sleeve, little quarter zip, whatever you want, you can get one of them. And just, it's, it's on the house. I said, really? So I go over and I find the cheapest shirt that I could, and it was $85 polo. And I said, is, is this okay? He's like, yeah, that's fine. Just throw it in, you know, just take it with you. I said, wow, how do I get all these benefits? I get all these benefits not because of who I am, but because of who I'm with. And that's the same reality that comes with being in Christ. You only get the benefits of being in his family if you are in his family. And if you're with him, if he has taken your sin and given you his goodness. So what makes a person fit? What makes a person fit to enter God's kingdom? Is it merit? Is it intentions? Let me warn you. Is it genuineness? That seems to be the thing now. You know, so, uh, you know, politicians and whatever. Hey, at least they're genuine. 
you know, genuineness seems to be the, 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 the currency these days. You know, I don't, I don't care, you know, what, as long as he's genuine. Uh, let me warn you against the response that each of us is spring-loaded to give. That we are acceptable before God because of something that we are or something that we have done or something that we intended to do. We are not acceptable to God because of that. We're acceptable to him, and I'll quote a hymn. I will quote uh, an old hymn that you're probably familiar with. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him, sinner. Will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his, his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. And then here it comes. Let not conscience make you linger, not a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Do you feel your need of him this morning? Do you feel your need of him? That you have nothing to offer to God of your own, but you need someone else. If you go to the golf course, they're going to turn you away at the gatehouse. You don't get free shirts. You don't get free golf. You don't get free drinks from the drink cart. You need the righteousness and the goodness of another. Believer, do you still feel that? You ought to. If you're a believer here this morning, this focus on the sun should draw you back to what you remember, should draw you back to worship again, should cause you to to just utter a, a silent prayer in between the seats of thankfulness because you realize and you remember anew that you didn't do it. And perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize You have never before today felt your need of him. I've got good news for you. We're all on the same playing field on that count. Do you feel your need of him? He wants you in his family. If you feel your need of Jesus, it is only because of one reason, that he is drawing you and he is calling you. Would you respond today? Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. You give us your gospel. You give us your very son, Jesus. And not only did he provide forgiveness and payment for our sins, but he also went through the trials and tribulations of living human life. He suffered with us. He suffered along with us. He's the creator God. He existed eternally. He was rejected, he was sent, he was foretold. All of these things draw us to worship him. I pray that he would seem in our hearts this morning glorious. I pray for the believer who has been reminded about who the son is, that they would just leave these doors today worshiping, wanting to tell others about this message with the message of Jesus on their lips. And I pray for the, Lord, I've got to believe that there are a few in the room today who have never before today felt their need of you but they know today that that they don't have any righteousness to stand on before you. They need a righteousness. They need a goodness. They need something from outside of them. They need a friend who will let them in, and Jesus is that friend. He has paid the price for us at the cross, and as we celebrated last week at Easter, he rose from from the grave to conquer sin. 
Lord, would, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our musicians are going to play, and we're going to have a time of response, a reflection, where we're just sitting in our seats, thinking about the words on the screen, thinking about the words that, that we've read in the Bible. And then after that, we're going to stand, and we're going to continue to sing. And if you need to respond in some kind of tangible way, feel welcome to do that. If you need to speak to me, I'm, I'm certainly here as a resource to you. If you have recognized your need for Christ, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Matt. Come and talk to someone. We'd love to tell you what it means to place your faith in Jesus. Please respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.